0: Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow.
1: Well, Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. I'm really excited to be joined by a good friend and an amazing author you need to know about, Jay Warner Wallace. He is a cold case homicide detective who has been featured on Dateline, Fox News, and Court TV. He's a former atheist and also the author of Cold Case Christianity and God's Crime Scene, which are phenomenal books you definitely need to get. And he has a master's degree in theology and lives in California with his wife and four children. He's also an amazing communicator. So Jay, it's great to have you on the show today.
0: Well, thanks for having me. I think we're partners really more than anything else in this great work we're trying to do with young people. So I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited. We'll get to hang out some this summer um, at Immersion Impact 360 yep. in July. So I'm really excited about having you down here uh, for that, working working with our students and teenagers. So it'll be super fun to have you down here.
0: Well, you know I've wanted to do that for a long time, and I think we just have, have had a scheduling kind of a, a deal. We haven't been able to put it together. So I'm just – yeah, I've been watching you from afar. Right We we both are interested in, in, in this this project of helping young people – kind of work through these critical issues and we know what happens i mean i was just reading your blog from about a week ago right where you wrote about you know will your teenagers graduate from their faith after high school that's really a good way to put it that's i think why both of us are writing these kinds of books we have that fear that that graduation moment even as you're getting ready to commission a bunch of students there today you know you're commissioning to something good you know you've prepared them to be able to withstand the culture in many ways. And we do have this fear that the graduation day is more than a celebration of graduating from high school. It might be, the the open door that kind of leads students away from the church and I think we're both concerned about that
1: absolutely you know that's that was really my heart in writing Welcome to College because I wanted to see students own their faith I know that's your heartbeat as well and we're so excited to see our uh, gap your students launch uh, today here yeah. at Pack 360 so that's super uh, yeah, fun awesome. and yep. see what's what's next for them but I want to talk about you in this awesome new book Forensic Faith so it's a, a cold case detective shows Christians why they should and how they can defend the truth of Christianity. So so talk to me about this new book. I I know you've been writing several, Cold Case Christianity and God's Crime Scene. So now tell me about uh, this new book and why you wanted to write Forensic Faith.
0: Well, you probably remember, too, right? You wrote this book called Is God Just a Human Invention with Sean McDowell? And at that point, you were probably spending time, you know, church to church, conference to conference. And I've seen you do it with me, you know, at places like uh, Rethink Conferences, where we're making the case for why we believe Christianity is reliable, the New Testament is reliable. Even the book you wrote on Questioning the Bible kind of really focuses on this issue. And then we also make the case for is God just a human invention? Does God really exist? And as I was doing that, I probably experienced the same thing that you experienced, which is that in many settings in the church, uh, there are people who don't even understand why you would want to make the case to begin with. Well, why do we need to do that? I mean, number one, no one's ever argued into the kingdom. How many times have you heard that? Or it's all God's work anyway. Or they'll say, look, I didn't need that in order to become a Christian. And I'm, I'm a Christian right now. And I don't need that kind of reassuring constantly with all this evidence. So I found myself, before I could make the case for, for God or make the case for the Bible, having to make the case for making the case. And I knew that at some point I was going to have to write this stuff down in book form. So number one, influence hopefully a culture, to see that we really have to have and now is the time for a more reasonable, evidential Christian worldview, a Christian faith. And we need to kind of lock down the terms, right? What what does it mean to have faith? What is the biblical definition of faith? And what is our duty? as Christians in terms of communicating what we believe. And that's something that if you've done this work for very long, or if you're interested in apologetics and you're listening to Jonathan's podcast, well, you probably already know that the struggle of having to communicate to your other fellow believers, why you're interested in this stuff. Why, why does this version, why does this kind of rendition of Christianity make sense to you? And why is it you, you feel like if, if you're like me, you're probably a little bit frustrated that more people don't want to, to lean in in a similar way. Well, that's why I wrote this book, uh, to really kind of help people see the difference between blind faith and forensic faith.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things I love, and I think so powerful, and I love reading in your books is you kind of share your own story. So listeners who are not familiar with that, just give us a quick summary of kind of how evidence played a role in your journey, and maybe why you think that's important, especially for the kind of culture that we live in today
0: i think you know i was somebody who was uninterested and was raised in an environment that was wholly secular and really naturalistic in its views you know i always thought that science would answer every question and the questions that were still left open were because we're being impatient if you were just patient enough is science are going to fill those answer those questions and close the gap in our knowledge so that that's really how i approached everything and i was pretty self-sufficient had a great life no i didn't have any thing that was really nagging me in terms of things I thought I needed to fix I really felt like life was good and I was about 35 and my we had kids and they were now approaching school age and my my wife was interested in you know exploring how do we raise kids she had been raised in an environment in which she did go to church but on the 18 years that we had been together We really hadn't done much in terms of, you know, we had our kids in, you know, like preschool and in a Christian setting occasionally. I think most of those were, but I was checked out on that. I just, I was not interested, but she, we were here in this town about three years and she said she wanted to go to church. We, I had not been in a church in three years, which was good for me because I was not a believer, but I was willing to go as an atheist just to help for her. You know, just I wanted to be a good husband. So So I went, and the the pastor was able to throw Jesus in this unusual way that that I thought was very clever. He said a lot of things about Jesus, but one of the things that stuck with me that day is that he described Jesus as the you know the, the source of all uh, Western culture, the moral, moral teaching of Western culture. He, he basically described Jesus as the smartest guy who ever lived, hmm. and I thought, as a cop who was enforcing the moral laws of our state, I I thought really. So you're telling me that this is all grounded in the teaching of Jesus? Let me, let me see if that's true. And so I bought a Bible, and I started reading through it. And, and that's really how I came in. So, so I came in through this kind of rich, evidential uh, approach where I was testing the Gospels to see if they would hold up the way that, that other accounts I had worked in my professional life. You know, I, I, I'm constantly reading eyewitness statements, trying to put those together, trying to figure out, even when if those witnesses have died many years ago, trying to figure out if what they said is true did they even really say that is that a misnomer is that something that the uh, detective has miswrote uh, or misunderstood at the time and so I, a lot of the same skill set that you might use to examine an unsolved murder you also can use to examine the case for Christianity but there's a skill set involved there right and part of it for me especially in this latest book is trying to to not just get to okay what are the facts But really, to talk more thoroughly about the skill set the detectives use, because it turns out, I think that the attributes that first responders possess are really appropriate for Christians. We are in the world, probably as much as any other group, maybe more. We're constantly called out to be in the world and engaging people in the world in times of crisis and challenge. Yet, at the same time, first responders are typically not of the world. You know, we are called out. We wear a uniform that separates us from the culture. We train in a way that no one else in the culture trains. We have communities that really, if you've worked in this line of business for very long, you start to feel like the only people who understand you really are your coworkers because they get to do this every day along with you. There's a kind of a set-apartness of in our first responders, yet we're constantly engaging culture. So I think that, that those attributes, I, I identified four in this book, I think will help Christians be effective in culture because they're simply embracing the approach that first responders embrace which are always trying to, you know, respond to challenges.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things I love so much about your writing is how practical it is. So again, my guest today is Jay Warner Wallace and he's the author of a fantastic new book Forensic Faith. And uh, you can definitely find more about that in the show notes here. But, you know, one of the things, you know, I ask this question, I know you do, you talk about this in the book, but you talk about going around when you speak to different churches and you start by asking a question and you ask audiences, why are you a Christian? And you say sometimes the response you get is kind of disappointing. Tell, tell more about why that's disappointing and the kind of answers you get to that question.
0: Well, and I, I predict it, you know, I, I've started now to have it as part of my presentation where I already know the answers are going to give me. And so they're already in the presentation, but I I, I want to hear them from them. And I think when you tell pastors in advance, I'm going to ask you this question, that your congregation, this question, I'm going to tell you in advance what their answers are going to be. That's kind of powerful for pastors, too, right? Because they can see, that, oh, this must be a national issue. And I ask that question, and I get the same three answers. I may not always get them in this order, but if I was to pull the whole room and have them all write these down, I guarantee you they would be in these percentages. The largest percentage of answers to the question, why are you a Christian, is that I was raised that way. I was raised in the church. My parents were Christians. I can be, I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. I became a Christian at six or eight or 10. Okay, I get it. That's an answer that's fair. As a matter of fact, I think if you did a polling, the recent Pew report demonstrates that the single most accurate predictor of worldview is what was the worldview of your parents. I mean, that is still the single most accurate influence and predictor of of worldview. And so these people respond that way. And the second category is, well, I've had some experience that demonstrated for me that Christianity was true. I prayed for something that I got or a miraculous healing or just something in my environment, something I connected the dots and realized that that experience demonstrated the truth of Christianity. That's a very actually good reason to hold to Christianity. But that's just the second category I typically see. The third is kind of like the second in the sense that it's experiential. And it's that, hey, I was a jerk before I met Jesus. And I'm not so much a jerk today. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jesus transformed my life, which is also a very good reason to be a Christian. And there's a fourth category, which I sometimes will get, depending on the audience. And that is that, well, it wasn't me making the decision to begin with. It's all God. It's the grace of God. It's, it's a very kind of theological reform kind of response in which you're you're saying, that, hey, it was God who did this, not me anyway. So those are the four categories of responses I typically get. And as I thought about those responses, coming from a family that was divided pretty evenly between atheists and Mormons and not really any Christians growing up, you know, my dad's second wife is Mormon. I have six brothers and sisters who were raised that way. If I was to ask my six brothers and sisters, why do you believe Mormonism is true? Why are you a Mormon? They're going to give me those same answers Hmm. and pretty much the same order. They were all raised in the LDS Church. They've known it since they were very young. They all believe that the Holy Spirit confirmed for them in some way that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God and the Book of Mormon is true. They would also say that they would really kind of default to the actions and the movement of the Holy Spirit and, and really deny. As a matter of fact, if you ever talk to Mormon missionaries, the idea that you would investigate the Book of Mormon is relatively blasphemous to these folks. Because you're simply, as James says, if you lack wisdom, you're simply to pray for it. And then it's all God after that. Well, okay, if that approach that most Christians will say is how they became a Christian is taken also by Mormons and it leads them to error, not truth, why would you be sure as a Christian that approach is leading you to to truth and not error? In other words, we're taking the same approach that people who believe something false take. And in order to confirm what we believe is true. And by the way, Peter Boghossian is an atheist who's written a book about a training manual for, for atheists, where he's trying to teach atheists how to evangelize Christians into atheism. He's observed the same reality. He, he says, you know, there's no point talking about evidence with Christians. They didn't use evidence to make that decision. We need to talk to them about the role of right thinking. It's an epistemological problem that Christians have, he believes. We don't understand how to discover truth. So he would suggest that atheists need to spend time with Christians, teaching them how to discover truth. Of course, he's ignorant, I think, in many ways of the strong case for Christianity, because I would take the same approach with Christians that Peter Boghossian would take. I think he's absolutely right. We need to stop and help Christians think evidentially about their faith. And I think that honestly, whichever of us gets to this group of Christians first is going to have the biggest influence. If the atheist gets there first, and who's going to get there first is the question. I think we have a duty as Christian thinkers or as Christian writers to help Christians rethink the nature of faith so they're ready and they won't be fooled by the lie.
1: Absolutely. And so, again, my guest today, I'm talking with J. Warner Wallace, author of the fantastic new book, Forensic Faith. You can learn all about his writing at coldcasechristianity.com. That's his blog and website and has all sorts of great information. You know, Jay's just so practical. Love love the way you talk about all these kind of things. And so, you know, as I, I completely agree. We get that answer and it's like, well, how do we tell the difference then? You know, if my Muslim friend or my Mormon friend says, well, I just ex- have experienced God. And it's like, okay, well, I can't argue with your experience. And that may be very well true. But how do we know that, you know, what you believe is true? And, and so to the Christian who's going, well, look, you know, you just need to have faith, right? The New Testament talks about just having faith help us understand why maybe they're misunderstanding what they think it means to have faith. So what is biblical faith
0: then? Yeah, and I think there's three ways we can kind of think about faith. And just think about it first as beliefs. When you hold beliefs, you hold them for probably one of three reasons. You may hold a belief that is actually an unreasonable belief. You hold to something that the evidence actually demonstrates is not true. And in the book, I kind of offer this idea that, hey, if you believe that you get warts from frogs or from toads, we know where warts come from. We know that toads do not cause warts. So we already get that. But at the same time, people still believe that, even though the evidence indicates that's not true. If you held that kind of belief, that would be an unreasonable belief. The second kind of belief is really a blind belief. It's You might hold to something that's true, but you don't even know what the evidence is that demonstrates its truth nature. You just happen to accidentally cling to it. And you're yeah. right. You're in the right spot, but you don't even know that you, why you're in the right spot. Mm-hmm. And so this is like, for example, my example in the book was that I believe that my dad, James David Wallace, is my dad. Although I've never had a paternity test, we didn't grow up together. He divorced my mom when I was three. There are some ways I suppose you could make a case that he's not my dad. But I believe he is my dad, even though I don't have the scientific evidence in front of me to demonstrate that reality. Now, I believe something that is true, even though I cannot win it in a court of law right now if I had to demonstrate it in front of a jury. There's the third kind of faith, though, and that's a forensic faith, a forensic belief, and that's a belief that is based on the best inference from evidence, even though you cannot close the gap and answer every question you might like answered. This is true for all of my criminal trials. I've never had a criminal trial in which I didn't have an unanswered question. So you might argue that stepping over and trying to dispel your unanswered questions because you think you've got enough evidence anyway to believe something is true, you might call that a a step of faith. But really what it is, it's a step of of trust given the best evidence inference from the evidence you do have but you might want to call that faith and in fact that is kind of the biblical definition yes you're going to have questions yes you're going to especially about an event in the distant past that you cannot reenact you cannot repeat this with science you're going to have to trust best basis of the best evidence possible but just be aware of the fact that every single worldview has unanswered questions it's not as though you'll be the only one who is stepping out in an act of trust given the best inference you can make from the evidence. If you're an atheist right now listening to this, you're also doing that because there's lots of questions you have that you can't answer right now as science. How did the universe get here? Why is there an appearance of fine-tuning in the universe? How did life originate in the universe? Why does it show of the appearance of design? Why do we have consciousness, free agency? Where do we get objective moral truths from? These are questions that science has yet to answer. and There's a bunch of possibilities thrown against the wall. Guess what? None of them are sticking right now, but you still believe that worldview. So I guess you're actually acting with the step of trust, given you can't answer those questions. I actually think that the questions that we might need to answer to hold to a worldview successfully are much smaller. The number are much smaller and much less significant in the Christian worldview than in any other worldview. Yes, you'll have to move forward with some unanswered questions. And yes, I would call that an act of faith. But it's forensic faith, not unreasonable faith, not blind faith. It is a faith stepping across this, this gap, given the best inference from evidence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's completely accurate and helpful. You know, it's one of those things, you know, think about Christianity, you know, when I talk on the problem of evil and suffering, it's like, At first, everyone has a problem of evil, right? It's not just the Christians who have it. I think the Christians best answer it. Now, I've encountered evil in my life. I know you have. So are there some unsatisfying elements still that I'm still emotionally waiting on? Yeah, but Christianity best answers that because of the cross and so many other reasons. But it far outstrips the other rivals, you know, and so... I think what you're talking about is it's, it's it's the importance of putting Christianity back in the field of play, rationally speaking, where we can actually talk about it and actually get our hands dirty and interact with it, as opposed to putting it in this kind of this pristine pedestal over here. Oh, well, I just got to believe and don't think too hard. But that's not what we see Paul doing. That's not what we see Jesus doing. That's not what we see Peter doing. So that's why I love what you're doing in forensic faith, because I think it's, it's putting Christianity back in the realm of discussion. And so super practical, love what you do in forensic faith. One of the things I really appreciate too, maybe you can share a little bit about is you talk about kind of some communication strategies and some guidelines, some tips to help Christians begin to talk about their faith, maybe in this, in these ways in this culture, maybe you can share a few, a few insights for us there.
0: Yeah. Some of these are really foundational before you even begin. And so they can be a bit I think off-putting or counterintuitive. So I mentioned this in the book as in the section. We, we basically took four steps here that first responders understand that I think that Christians could embrace. Number one is knowing what your duty is. Do you understand what your duty is as a Christian casemaker? If you don't understand your duty, you're not going to die for it. You're not going to go out and say, I'm so sold out to my duty as a first responder that I'm willing to take a bullet. Well, you know what? You have to be that sold out. I have a daughter who just graduated from the Marine Corps boot camp. You know, when you go into that situation, they always Say every Marine is a rifleman. What does that mean? It means that guess what? If you're wearing that uniform, that we're probably going to put you on the front line. This is what you signed up for. If you're not committed to that duty, don't join. And I get that. So it's about duty, it's about do we know how to train? active training and you're constantly training by the way for things you hope you'll never have to do. As a matter of fact, you're training for things that many of us won't ever do. So you're training for all these worst-case scenarios and you may work an entire career and never encounter a worst-case scenario, but you train anyway. Uh third thing is you learn how to investigate. How do I discover truth about crimes, about suspects? And then fourth thing is how do I communicate those truths? So in that section on communication you're talking about The very first thing I talk about is jury selection, because people will say all the time, well, how do you win a case? It's kind of like, well, how do we successfully navigate a conversation in which we're making the case for Christianity? Well, we don't win criminal trials in opening statements, and we don't win criminal trials in the evidence show, in which we're the the body of of the trial. We don't win our cases in closing arguments. We win our cases, sad to say, in jury selection. We win it in jury selection, and that's because if you don't put the right people in that box, it's not going to work out for you. If you put people who are so biased against you or so inclined against your message or so inclined against you as a person, you are not going to win. So jury selection ends up being the first thing I would tell anyone when it comes to communicating the, the truth of Christianity. And I always say that the entire world is, in jury trials are divided into two halves. People who are kind of inclined to agree with the prosecution before they even start. And people who are inclined to agree, agree with the defense before they ever start. Either they're people who have mm-hmm. a great experience with law enforcement or people who have a negative experience with law enforcement. So they're in one of these two camps. And those two groups are divided in half also. So from one to four, what you have is some people, number one who are so inclined toward the prosecution that if we just show up, they're gonna find this guy guilty. Number two are people who are inclined toward the prosecution, but they're fair, they'll do the right thing. Three are people who are inclined toward the defense, but they're fair, they'll do the right thing, and four are people who hate the police and hate the prosecutor so much that no matter what kind of evidence you show them, they're gonna hang that jury. They are not going to vote a guilty verdict. Now, remember, attorneys get choices about who they put in the box. We have a certain set number of exclusions. We can exclude some people from the jury. No defense attorney wants a guy from group one or a gal from group one because they're going to find his defendant guilty. And no prosecutor wants someone from group four because they're not going to work either. So it turns out what we're doing is trying to find people in groups two and three because those are the people we're going to impanel on a jury. Of course, prosecutors want more twos. Defense attorneys want more threes. But nobody wants the one and fours. Well, it turns out when you're making the case for Christianity, the entire world is divided into two groups in a similar way. Believers and non-believers. Those two groups are divided one to four. One are believers that are so committed to this, you could get the body of Jesus and drag it around town. They would still say, I don't care. I don't care if you got evidence against this. It's actually compelling evidence. I don't care. I'm in. It works for me. I love this. I was raised this way. I'm in. Two are Christians who are Christians, but they're having their set of questions and doubts. Three are skeptics who are having their sets of questions and doubts. Two and threes are open. And four are people who are so anti-theist that when I'm in a, like I remember one time I was at University of Alabama doing a large presentation in front of the entire student body. And I got people in the back from the atheist group who are live tweeting profanity at me because they so hate the message Mm. that they're group 4 they're anti-theists. Now, who am I trying to reach? Well, I just know this. I call it the three-quarter principle. When I'm communicating the gospel, groups one to three are paying attention, but group four is not. I, can say all, I don't care how I say it, how I pitch it, group four is right. so inclined, their heart is so hard, they're not hearing the message. I'm asking people in this book, before you begin to communicate, take some time to assess your jury and figure out where they fall in this spectrum. You might think that at once, these are the guys who say, I don't need the evidence. I'm already in. I I don't really care about the evidence. So I don't really need to learn it. Really? Well, I guarantee you, you've got a young person in your life who's in group two.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Either your son, your grandson, your niece, your nephew, somebody who's still calling themselves a Christian, but are kind of straddling the fence right now with some open questions. If for no other reason, if you're in group one, you need to learn the case because you need to be able to make it to group twos. And of course, we're trying to reach group twos and threes because they're open. They want to know what's the evidence for this? Why is this true? But what do we do with group fours? Well, my dad is in group four, and I was in group four for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And the only strategy I have for group fours, I'm still going to communicate this, but I don't expect them to, oh, I'm in. No, I'm going to pray and I'm going to model for group four. I'm going to pray constantly and I'm going to model the the love of Christ to group fours, because at some point I know God may flip that switch, and they will move from group four to group three. And once they move from group four to group three, I can reach them. As a matter of fact, every conversation we've had over the last five years, they will recall, and now that won't be a waste of work. But I first identify where the person I'm trying to speak to is on that spectrum, Mm. and then I know what my approach is going to be and you'll save a lot of time in trying to be clever in terms of how you present this by simply picking the right jury by the way if you pick the right jury it is all downhill it's all fun and it's all when i I don't have the right jury in the box that's a fun six weeks in trial Mm -hmm. because i really know this jury just needs me to demonstrate why this is true i don't have to win each one of them individually because they already like us, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's we're and by the way, the other side wants the same thing. So, I think first we need to do is it's a long answer to a short question, but we need to pick the right jury.
1: Yeah, so knowing our audience is huge. I love the kind of the framework you lay out there, the just kind of the survey of the kinds of people we're going to interact with. And so answering that question, it's like, where is this person at? That's going to determine kind of how you go about it. But if you've not thought through why you believe what you believe or the case for Christianity or those kinds of things, then you're not going to be ready, whichever audience you're presented That's with. That's right. And, you know, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's one of the things I really appreciate about you is, is you always make this case powerfully, but with gentleness and and respect and both of those have to go together now more than ever in our age where, where we don't know which audience sometimes we're interacting with uh, if it's a general public audience, but if we do, then we're all the more equipped. And in your book, Forensic Faith, is just an outstanding guide for Christians to kind of learn how to make the case for Christianity tactically, how to go about it, how to engage people who believe. Differently. So there's so much good stuff in here. I mean, we could spend a few hours on, but maybe one thing just to kind of leave our audience with something really helpful is, you know, there's always this objection, one of the most common ones, you deal with some common objections at the end of your book, Forensic Faith, and ones, well, look, Christians are just hypocrites, right? So it's like, you guys are just hypocrites. So if you had like the like one minute response to that question, how, how would you advise... A, you know, let's just say that a person's at work or they're dealing with a, with a son or a daughter or a a coworker or something. And you said, well, Christians are just hypocrites. Help them respond to that. in in a way that's kind of short and, and something that they can get their head around.
0: Yeah, and that's one of those things we're trying to do, right, is to figure out, you know, how can we put it in bullet points in our mind so we can communicate it to others? And so I try to give it just a few bullet points. First of all, well, what are you talking about? Are talking about Christians or true Christians? Because there's a difference between Christians and true Christians. I mean, we always talk about certain political parties. Are they really Republicans or just Republicans in name only? Carinos, right? Well, this is what we're talking about. This is true for every worldview. Forget about politics. It's true for every theistic worldview. So the question I would say is, well, look, If you're talking about true Christ followers, well, true Christ followers are not hypocrites. We may fail on occasion, but if you're continually, and you are without any apology, denying the teaching of Jesus— If you're out there living in a way that denies the teaching of Jesus continually and you aren't even apologetic about it, well, you're not really a Christ follower. So you're something else. You may have that label, but there is no doubt that you're not truly a Christ follower. So we've got to separate out the difference here. But we also got to remember that true Christ followers are imperfect. We're still going to fail, mm. and we're still going to trouble. Sometimes I think on this side of the cross as opposed to the other when I was an atheist, over there, I would commit sins all the time and never even give them a second thought. Over here, I may occasionally fall into simple thinking or even into sinful actions, and I am tormented by it. Mm. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is wrestling with my base nature because I'm a Christian now. I'm a Christ follower, and the stuff I used to celebrate before, I am now in regret over. That's because true Christ followers are imperfect. We will fail and we'll be the first to admit it because we know that standard precedes us. And finally, I think you've got to be honest about this. True Christ followers are far more likely to be called hypocrites than any other group. Think about it. When I was not a Christ follower, the only standard Jim had was Jim. You wouldn't even know what my standard is. You wouldn't know anything about my standard. And by the way, if you asked me and I have broken my standard, I would simply lie to you and, and change the standard because I was the only standard I had to meet. Now, if there's a group that has an objective public standard that everyone knows about and it's the highest possible standard is Jesus of Nazareth, well, wouldn't you – now you're in trouble because you're going to fall short of that. And everyone knows the public standard. So it turns out that more than any other group, because all the other groups have a, are in a post-truth world, in a, the standard is wiggly. But it's not for us. The standard is firm. It's high. It's holy. So, yeah, no kidding. We are always going to look like a hypocrite before any other group because we're the one group that's willing to bend our knee to the standard. Hmm. So, yeah, duh. Duh. I always say duh when someone says you've got a <laughs> Well, yeah, duh, we look like hypocrites. We're the only group really that can consistently look like hypocrites because you know our holy high standard. But trust me, we know it too. And we are struggling with that. And there's no, no one is more upset about a bad cop shooting than cops. Mm-hmm. No one is more upset about a bad video displaying some behavior that no cop in the world would ever want to be caught in than cops. No one hates a dirty cop more than a clean cop. So, uh, of course, as Christians, we are tormented by that because no one hates that kind of hypocrisy more than us. But remember, true Christians have those three factors. True Christ followers are not hypocrites. We are imperfect, and we are going to be more likely to be called out for misbehavior than any other group
1: yeah i love i love that answer it's so important because it's just framing again right it's like it's like we actually have a standard and then you can gently with gentleness and respect maybe at the end of that conversation that answer go you know i mean i'm the first to admit my own struggles and issues on this but do you ever fall short of your own standard, whatever that might be? And just kind of let that question hang out there a little bit, because it's going to be obvious. It's like we all, I mean, that's, that's Romans too. We, we don't live up to even the standard we do have. If we, even if we, if it's a very low one, there's going to be some moments in there. So I love, this is a great practical teaching and training. This is Jay Warner Wallace. He's our guest today on the podcast, his new book is excellent. It's called Forensic Faith. But if you're listening right now, and you should have picked up on a theme that both he and I are passionate about, and that's training, especially the next generation. And so I want to tell you about a couple of quick opportunities here at Impact 360. One is immersion which is our two week worldview and apologetics experience for high school students. So we're currently on a wait list. That's where Jay will be with me uh, this summer in July, but you can still add to that wait list. You never know. You might be able to get, get get on that for this year. Um, Sean McDowell, Brett Kunkel, other people will be joining us for that. We also have a gap year where you can, your son or daughter can spend nine months with us exploring these questions and, learning to own their faith. We also have Propel, which is a one-week where they really get grounded in their biblical identity and kind of how to engage culture and influence others through servant-mindedness like Jesus did. So anyway, more stuff on that at impact360.org. But the main thing that I want you to take away from this conversation today is that as Christians, we're in an environment where we must learn to make the case. And I can't think of anyone better out there to be reading than Jay Warner Wallace on this. He's Right, so clear, and his books are really helpful, so Cold Case Christianity, his new book is Forensic Faith. You can find out more about him at coldcasechristianity.com. We'll have links in the show notes about how you can get over that stuff. But Jay, I just want to appreciate so much your heart for doing this. And just I have I've gotten to know you over the years. And you know, one of the things I appreciate is your integrity and your passion for equipping the next generation and seeing people follow Jesus with confidence. So I just want to thank you for that and just really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today.
0: Well, you know, Jonathan, we're we're united in this mission in many ways. We're we're on the same teams with the same people. Your new release of Welcome to College at John Stone Street, right, writes the forward. And, and he also wrote the forward to my book. And so we all get it that this is an important mission. I'll be talking about your book in a blog and in our BTV show. But I can tell you that this is really something that all of us, we can't just look to people who are out there writing books and say, well, that's their job. Thank God for those people. I, I want you to do that. I want you to thank God for all of us. We want to thank God for each other. But I think it's a duty for all of us in the church. It, now is the time to address and help the most important generation that is in the church today. And unfortunately, it's not my generation of 56-year-old guys. It's young people who are in high school and college right now. That is the future of the Christian church in America. And so, yeah, I'm just glad to be part of this partnership with you. And I can't commend more uh, to people your work and what you're doing there. This, this, I wish we had actually 10 times the space to get more students involved. And I know that someday that's going to happen, Jonathan. And then we'll be talking back, looking back at this time and saying, remember when we only had that small number of students and look what's happened since then. So that's my prayer uh, that going forward, that this will grow and take over uh, as a movement.
1: Well, thanks so much. And again, the book is Forensic Faith. You can learn more about it at our website, impact360.org. And this week, our prayer for you is to have all the influence that God is calling you to have. So be courageous Learn to make the case for Christianity, and we'll see you next time.
0: For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.